I've uh, had a look at um, a number of the questions, so I've chosen the easy ones to answer. <laughs> Actually, there are quite a few, and I doubt if I'll be able to uh, respond to them all. In regard to the talk, last night's talk on not having, it is interesting you see yourself as having or collecting religious experiences. For myself, I see it this way that in this moment, uh, in this mind moment, I am creating the causes and conditions of the next. I can't read that, and it says, I can at least in this moment create the causes and conditions for becoming in the next. The talk yesterday evening was speaking of I as anyone who may relate, any one of us who may relate to the experience of life of having and going after. And as the person says in the question, one can, one mind moment, one can create the causes and conditions of the next. But I would have some doubt about this. It is perhaps giving too much power and potential to the mind. Certainly our awareness and understanding can contribute, but whether we can create the conditions for the next, since there are such a whole variety of factors outside of the field, direct field of of the mind. And isn't it too on the same point that in our relationship to life we keep relating to it from the standpoint of that this moment as it's showing itself or this present or this present situation is showing itself to me and in that I make it a means for something else. I make it or try to make it a cause to have some effect. Can we look at it without trying to make it for something else and see what is revealed through that? Is it not possible that being attached to the present moment could lead, <coughs> if, your le if your motivation was not to help others, 
to a very insular life. In other words, deep down, you, you are assuming everyone is sensitive to each other. Otherwise, where is it all leading? Certainly, um, attachment has a remarkable capacity to make anything worth being attached to. And the present moment, sadly, is no exception to this. So once there's attachment and clinging, <coughs> then there's resistance to memory, there's resistance to future thoughts, there's uh, all kinds of pain that can emerge out of it. In speaking of the here and now, we're speaking of it in its fullness and in its content, in what appears. I, when I look at the present moment, I'm sure it's no different from what you look at. And in that, I see there are human beings in this present moment. Surely that's enough. Surely that's enough to bring a response. If everything is impermanent, what about the impermanence itself? in life to seeing, awareness and understanding. Very ordinary, um, everyday mind. Wants some things to stay as they are and other things to change as quickly as possible. This is everyday conditioned mind. Lives life like this. Want some things to keep and stay just as they are because one really likes it just as it is. And one person wants this to go very quickly. Get rid of this. This must finish quickly. Whatever. And so there's so much vested interest in keeping, preserving, making something unchanging and making something change. Whatever. Every thing, thing, there's much better concept in Buddhism called Dharma. Every Dharma, that means everything, every experience, every content, every event, every relationship, every appearance, every particular, as a particular, changes. Appearance changes, comes and it goes, and this change we become acutely aware of. Plus the investment in keeping and preserving and changing and so forth. And this is all in the relative world, conventional world. 
just supposing our inquiry is such that we don't take up a particular. We don't take up a thing. We don't take up a dharma. Then where is the question of impermanence? Meditators, this is a good one, meditators are the best workers for an assembly line. The people who don't speak this funny language called English know what an assembly line is. It's, um, if you work in a in a factory and uh, and everything is just coming off the machinery is being the bits and pieces are being produced and as it's running off this is called the assembly line it's a little bit like when you go to collect your backpack when you arrive at an airport <laughs> meditators are the best workers for an assembly line being aware of every movement, <laughs> feeling the pain without shouting, forgetting the conditions they work under, <laughs> to go into a I think it's go into a factory and work, or to go in a retreat and meditate. What's the difference? <laughs> Thought makes a difference. What is the reason for my being? You ask me? God. <laughs> so I become mindful of my being alive at every moment of the day? Is that it? If it is, why bother supporting a nuclear freeze movement or getting involved in environmental issues? Why am I here on this planet? That's the whole purpose of this retreat, to answer that kind of question. What is the reason for my being? <coughs> Do awareness and objects arise together? Or is awareness always present? and the objects come into its light and go. <laughs> From uh, experience, understanding here, I would say that if we were to say awareness is always present and objects come into its light and go, it implies that awareness stands alone. It implies that it's always uh, present and that there is some unchanging element to it. And then these objects <coughs> of life 
experiences, events, thoughts come and go. But we might say, I would say, objects affect awareness, and awareness affects the appearance of objects, and that there is there in a bare duality. And awareness, we, we can say in relative terms, it, it can develop, can grow, we can go two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, two steps back. And the influence of what's happening inwardly, outwardly, affects awareness, and awareness affects what's happening. This bare duality is called life. This is it. What we are aware of, what affects us, what we influence, awareness with its object, awareness with its content. And all inquiry, exploration, takes place within this field, within this process, within this dynamic. But let us not make that duality some ultimate truth. Let's look into that. Let's, let's see, let's sense, intuit with regard to this activity which appears as present. Why perhaps all we pass on our teachers are so miserly in telling clearly during retreat the secret of converting pain into waves? <laughs> are you implying that we enjoy watching people suffer? <laughs> um, I'm not sure if we're mi miserly. Well, I'm not sure if I'm miserly. But in our practice and in the meditation, the pain factor is um, one of the distinctive features of Vipassana retreats. <laughs> <laughs> the second is the good food. <laughs> and in that, there aren't any... Um, really any secrets at all. Some people have secrets and despite all my pressure refuse to reveal them. But in practice and in meditation there's feelings and experiences which arise and some of it is painful and sometimes very, very painful. And the Buddha said something rather nice or interesting. He said there are four types of people in this practice. There are those who go um, happily and quickly. There are those who go happily and uh, slowly. There are those who go painfully and quickly. And then there are those... <laughs> immediately everyone identifies with the fourth category. <laughs> <laughs> which is painfully and slowly. 
<laughs> and in this painfully and slowly business, that working with pain is changing a very fundamental conditioned pattern, which is to avoid it. And unfortunately, our uh, society has, is and has become increasingly intolerant towards pain, and one sees these appalling advertisements on the goggle box, whereby some person goes into the uh, pharmacist, the chemist, and they've got some pain in their back, or they're holding their head, and they're, they're looking dreadful, and then, then they say, aspirin, aspro, or uh, whatever it is, take this, and then you see a big grin on their face, <laughs> instant relief, and they have very successfully suppressed the pain and pushed it back into the cellular life. No inquiry as into the causes, into the conditions, why a person is experiencing migraines, back pains, ex stomach ache, etc., etc. It's sheer denial. And it's having dreadful effect on the whole human system, the, the, the organism. Certainly there is the appropriate use of um, uh, pain and the message it brings is the appropriate use of pain killers. But to really be aware when they're being used and only really when appropriate and necessary so having heard that answer, you could say I'm s still being very miserly in telling you the secret of converting pain into waves. Because to speak on that would be to make promises, guarantees, assurances that it's possible. So it's a nice saying in, Eng in English, what cannot be cured must be endured. <laughs> I've really enjoyed the music parts of the day. A lot of your choices are in my collection. I bet this morning's wasn't. <laughs> uh, however, you have left out a very important lot of music. And very good point. Certainly there is enough music by uh, women which can be very effective in bringing the feminine aspect uh, into a retreat. And I just agree totally, and the person has um, listed a number of uh, women mus musicians from Kate Bush. Not quite sure if Kate's music, anyway, <laughs> but um, many others as well. And <coughs> with regard to the music, virtually all the music which, he, which uh, is played on the retreats pretty well all of it, has been sent um, to me by friends who have participated in retreats. And this is what we play in the morning. And if you would like to uh, play, uh, hear more music by women, which I think is a wonderful suggestion, and of course we do, then do please send us some, uh, send us the music, make a 
please feel free to make a copy from an album. Don't take any notice of those things that this music mustn't be copied. <laughs> those gangsters are making enough profits already, so... What is your concept of an ideal society? <laughs> and what steps would you take in the West and in the world towards this? <laughs> I could tell a rather nice story. It's, um, I've, told, I've told, it be, told it before. There's a joke which goes around um, Europe of what the ideal society consists of. And um, it goes something along the lines that um, uh, um, an ideal society would consist of um, German um, political, political voting system, English policemen, um, French cooking, um, Swiss um, architecture, and Italian lovers. <laughs> this would be the ideal society. And um, the opposite, the worst society, would consist of German policemen, <laughs> French architecture, um, English cooking, <laughs> Italian politicians, and Swiss lovers. <laughs> How do you feel about that? <laughs> <laughs> Terrible, isn't it? <laughs> it's a joke, it's a joke. <laughs> oh dear. I'm constantly told by Mahayana followers, Sangha and they, that the highest goal for everyone practicing Buddhism should be enlightenment. Time and, and again they stress that this can only be achieved by following the Mahayana path, that Hinayana, as they prefer to call it, or Zen, etc., are incomplete as they do not teach bodhicitta and only lead, up, only lead one up to Nirvana. Would someone like to translate bodhicitta? Bodhicitta is the altruistic aspiration towards enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. How do you see this and what is the difference between nirvana and enlightenment? Um, I would say that number of um, considerations here. <coughs> um, one is 
that there's a very, very important and vital communication from the Mahayana tradition as a constant reminder to all of us that, uh, let us say, the individual does not exist independently. The constant theme of Mahayana. In, and in such awareness and understanding the, shall we say, the salvation of one and the salvation of all are in a very essential way interconnected. And therefore, in coming deeply in touch with ourselves through the various ways and means which are available and, and accessible to us, when the heart is being touched and being opened up, it opens up to the whole field of life. Human life, creature life, environmental life, and in that heart opening up, there comes about its own flowering. What does easily happen is that comparing and judging takes place. Comparing and judging of traditions and practices and approval and disapproval and all of this is just mind and nonsense. And we might say, we might say, that when one sits down to engage in one's meditation practice, and one is looking at oneself, we might say this is the, uh, this time the vehicle or Hinayana. Whether that person is doing visualization, is doing mantra, or is watching the breathing, or whatever, the practice at that time is primarily, in that moment, focused on the inner. And in the moment, because I say, I say compassion is not a feeling. That's more towards pity or uh, sympathy. But compassion is an action. It's a, a clear gesture towards others. When we express that clear gesture towards others, coming from a place of affection, of compassion, if we put it in the Buddhist language, we may say at that time the Mahayana path is being unfolded. And it's a tremendous challenge for all of us to find ways and means to integrate the inner work and the outer expression. That's a, that's a great exploration. The peace which we discover, unshakable peace which is available via a meditative inquiry, we might use concepts like nirvana or enlightenment or whatever. Why did you become a monk? What kind of practice did you do 
during this time, besides vipassana, and why did you go back to normal life? I mentioned earlier in the retreat that uh, I first came to India in uh, 67 and I went to Saranath where the this is near Banaris where the Buddha gave his uh, first Dharma talk and I picked up a Nothing unusual, I picked up a small book and just read a little bit about the Dharma teachings. And two things in this book, two concepts, uh, immediately took, if I may say, deep root. Certain kind of receptivity which develops on the road, which you're familiar with. And the two concepts were the Buddha's emphasis on impermanence, which bring up a great deal, of course, and on non-attachment and for the next three years these two concepts what should we say in just general day-to-day life were practiced and and applied and I began to appreciate the spiritual significance of them what it meant for the heart so in, nine, in the beginning of 1970, I went to see Ajahn Buddhadasa, who is, has been living for the past 60 years in the forest in uh, southern Thailand, in Surat Thani. When he was 20 years old, he went, as many young men do in um, Theravada countries, to take ordination for a period of time, three-month period as a rule. And he was in a relationship. He was... Uh, engaged and at the end of this three months of uh, doing his three month period as a monk he went to see his uh, fiancée he told me this years ago he went to see his fiancée and he said I'm very sorry I can't marry you I've married the Buddha and uh, so I went there to see Buddha Dasa Dasa means servant, servant of the Buddha. And Watsuanmok, that means garden of liberation. And told him I was on the road, blah, blah, blah. And he said, if you really want to understand life, he said, don't be attached anywhere. This really rang a bell immediately. And he took hold of his robe and he pulled it off his shoulder and he says, not even to this which he had been in at that time, whatever, 30 or 40 years. Then he sent me off into the hut and said, just go and think a bit about what I said. So after a period of time, I went to see him, 17 days, two or three weeks. Then I went to see him again while living in the forest and said to him, "Um, I want to become a monk. This is a necessary next step, which seemed a small shift from being on the road and carrying little to being a monk. The main difference is one has less hair. And, and uh, he said to me, anybody who uh, changes their religion, funny thing to say, but he said, anybody who changes their religion does so because they really haven't deeply comprehended their own. So uh, this wasn't very encouraging. <laughs> so, uh, and then he told me to go away 
wouldn't let me stay any longer. So then I went up to Laos, when this was when the war was going on, the B-52s were flying over and dropping their bombs and so forth. This further encouraged me to become a monk. And uh, after uh, six years, if I may say, without sounding too conceited, um, when the fruit is ripe, it's got to leave the tree. Olay. How do you see guilt operating in Western society? How does it affect the minds of people within that society? Is it a legacy of Christianity or a more universal thing? <clears throat> this area of uh, guilt has very major influence and it's very major influence within our society, Western society. And sometimes perhaps we don't appreciate the degree of influence that religious conditioning and attitudes can have on the psyche and especially in youth, in childhood, and how that can have an influence through the whole course of one's life. And guilt, tragically in Christianity, has been used as a weapon to make children and adults conform to a model. And this stems out of this attitude of mind that and basically, and it sounds outrageous, that because Eve bit this apple, the rest of us have got to pay the price for it. And this is believed, with, sometimes with such intensity. You know, what sort of God is it that plants an apple tree <laughs> in the middle of a garden <coughs> and then says, you can have a great time, but don't eat the apple. You know, what, you know is this the fulfillment of Western intelligence? <laughs> I don't want to poke fun. I do, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and what's happened in all of this, sadly, and there's plenty of amusing equivalents in the East, now what has happened is that in the course of time religion has got confused with good and evil, right and wrong and then we have been told you must do good on the prescribed terms of the church and if you do bad you will be punished. If you don't go to church on Sunday you go to hell. If you don't say your confession, if you're this is in Catholicism, you go you go to hell if you don't eat up your breakfast in the morning you'll go to hell whatever and this produces it stimulates it touches it, it, it manufactures inside human beings a feeling of being guilty and there have been tremendous number of pressure trips not only in religion but in other words which have fed this feeling of guilt and thus when that the impression gets deeply rooted, I am bad. 
and therefore I must do this, that and the other to become good. And this is the way the mind has got conditioned. And we need a, a serious aspect of our life to, to see the ways and means this guilt feeling, these guilt feelings work for us. And it is a, a very um, widespread kind of problem. Quite different from the feeling of regret. You know, you know, several times in life we do something, we realize it was unskillful, there is some regret there, and, and we want to look at that to learn from that experience so that we don't, whatever it is, harm ourselves or harm another again. And those feelings of regret are valuable and rather necessary responses to situations where you and I have acted unskillfully. But guilt feeling is, is much more pervasive than that. It brings about a great deal of unhappiness, inhibition, difficulty to respond, and sometimes it's rooted in the the religiosity that we've been has been pumped into us. <laughs> Are we really already enlightened but just don't realize it because we want enlightenment? All this, if I may say, um, falls once again into the mind world or can fall into the mind world not of <coughs> views and opinions. This is of course a, a direct question. One of the views and opinions which arises is sometimes in, in uh, Zen we are already enlightened but we don't realize it. And that is one view and opinion. And then one has another view and opinion, say in uh, Theravada, we are most certainly not already enlightened. And by following uh, uh, the path, we will become enlightened. <coughs> and this is another view. Let's not take up any view. It can be rather enlightening. <laughs> Could you discuss the advantages, disadvantages of monkhood? Of being a monk? Um, just um, one, one thing here. For some um, uh, personal area of interest for me, for some time I have been um, encouraging or attempting in the Theravada tradition, to get what is called the bhikkhuni order re-established. Bhikkhu means monk, bhikkhuni means uh, a nun who has the same number of uh, precepts, guidelines as the monk. The bhikkhuni order died out in the Theravada tradition several centuries ago. In order for it to be re-established, a uh, woman must take full ordination 
and that full ordination ceremony must be performed by fully ordained women, by bhikkhunis. And since there's no bhikkhunis in the Theravada tradition, it means that a woman would have to go to the Mahayana tradition, and there are only three places in the world where a woman can go for full ordination. That is to Hong Kong, to South Korea, or to Taiwan. And there are three places there where this full ordination as a bhikkhuni can take place. So, recently, last year, I was um, in Sri Lanka giving talks and meetings and uh, so forth because of the, for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, because of this conflict which is taking place and violence between the Tamils and the Sinhalese. And while there, I was invited to give a talk on the International Women's Day there. And I spoke about the necessity and the importance of re-establishing the bhikkhuni order, which was broken down, finished several hundred years ago in the Theravada tradition. And I just received a letter a few weeks ago that a number of women have purchased land there, providing buildings, and there is in real interest to re-establish this order. And I received a letter and asking what next steps to take, etc., etc., given them the addresses of people, the contacts to make in the three countries of Asia where this is uh, possible. And also there is a meeting in uh, February here of women involved in the Buddhist practices and Buddhist traditions in Budgaya, and hopefully that will be very much on the agenda. Because traditionally, as we know, the situation has been that there has it's been primarily a male uh, domain with all the patriarchy and all the limitations which accompany that. And I feel that there's a real opportunity here to really revitalize um, the bhikkhuni order, both in the Theravada tradition and to establish more and more women who are interested in this way of committed living um, in the other traditions as well. With regard to uh, um, either, the only way that one can really explore these things, of course, is by first-hand direct experience. I would say for myself, the experience of monkhood was a very nourishing and valuable period of my life, for which I am truly, profoundly grateful. And I also have, I may say now, a, a period just coming up to six years of being a parent and householder. And I would say that, or this period, has been equally as profound and beneficial an experience as the monkhood. And as Westerners, and as is recognized too in many, more and more so within the tradition, especially the Mahayana tradition, that it's not really so much a question of being a monk or being a nun or being a lay person. It's a question of where the heart is. Do you think that there is a difference between 
animal killing and killing of plants. Uh, for human beings, I would say, yes, I presume the person referring to animal killing is referring to killing of animals for food. And this is an, an area of the countless areas for each one of us to look at, to actually face. In that, um, the Buddha um, has made a number of statements which I feel have been quite unfortunate. I feel he deserves to be criticised for because of the long-standing influence that these statements have. And one of them is with regard to um, the eating of meat, and it's particularly with regard to monks, where he said a monk must take what is given. And what has happened is that people, and as in the West, as in the East, being that meat is frequently the most expensive item on the plate, people regard that the giving of meat to the monk, that more merit is made because of what one gives and the amount of time, care, attention and money that's gone into it. Not only that, unfortunately, that meat, eat, meat eating is very, very common throughout the, all of the Buddhist traditions. And for our Hindu uh, friends, they can barely listen to a Buddhist when they know that they're meat eaters. And I feel with, with regard to this is that, of course, life lives on life. Plants are life and animals are life. As a vegetarian, that's one who does not eat meat nor fish, for me, I say, and I feel, I don't have to eat meat. It's totally non-essential to my diet. 